Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Many people are aware of the Wilmington 1898 race massacre and the wrongful prosecution of the Wilmington 10. They're also aware of Michael Jordan and Wilmington as being his home place. However, most people are not aware of the underlying history and impact that these critical events have had on the growth and development of the Wilmington community. In the middle of these two events, there is a significant history which we all should understand and place into its proper perspective. The results of the 1898 Wilmington Race Massacre significantly altered the trajectory of Wilmington and the continuing interaction between the races throughout North Carolina. It is a consequence which remains even today. In addition, the history surrounding the Wilmington 10 prosecution continues to haunt the growth and development of Wilmington and North Carolina. That case directly resulted in the destruction of 10 lives. Eight of those who were impacted were teenagers who were never able to recover from the trauma of this wrongful prosecution. And it significantly infected the lives of their family, friends, and many other people who did not even know them. Tonight, we are going to discuss the impact of these historic and celebrated events with a person who found herself in the middle of them. We are honored to be joined by Miss Bertha Boykin Tong, a native of Sampson County, who was born to educators who pressed upon her, her twin sister and other siblings to become the very best qualified representatives of her family and race that they could be. I must also acknowledge the fact that Ms. Todd and her sister Myrtle are proud graduates of North Carolina College. Now it's called North Carolina Central University and graduated cum laude with BS degrees in biology. Ms. Todd continued her education by earning two master's degrees, one from NCCU and the other from East Carolina University and is also the author of My Restless Journey which describes her upbringing and the many contributions which she made to Wilmington and to North Carolina. So Ms. Todd, we thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, join us this evening to talk about you and your accomplishments this evening. Well, I'm happy to be here. And it certainly is a pleasure to say what the Baptist ministers and the Presbyterian ministers usually say. I'm just happy to spread the word, especially. <laughs> and, 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 and we're going to do just, uh, just that. But to start us off, I uh, want to kind of take you back. And uh, I know it's been a couple of years since you've been back uh, to the uh, beginning. But 
can you kind of talk about uh, your early life in uh, Sampson County, your family, your upbringing, and uh, that huge family uh, that you uh, that you became a part of there? Well, my father and mother really met at Federal State Normal. I was really amused, and I have some of the letters that indicate that. She was a third grade teacher from Duplin County, and he was a lead principal in Sampson County. Out of the four brothers, he was the only one who extended his education in order to be prepared to teach. That I'll never know why, because there were four brothers and two sisters. His two sisters also received an elementary or whatever normal education from Fayetteville State University or Fayetteville State Normal, and they also talked for a while. After they married, of course, I had an elder brother who graduated from Shaw and North Carolina Central Graduate School. Then I had another sister who was a graduate of Shaw University and New York University, and a twin sister who had five years, a graduate of master's degree, undergraduate, and the University of Michigan and the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. She finally earned three masters and two doctorates. <laughs> That's amazing. I laugh when I say that because both of us were supposed to have gone to the University of Michigan after we graduated from um, North Carolina Central University with a master's. I got married and she went on. So she just continued to go to school. Out of all of this, my father died. He was, he lived to serve as principal of Garland Colored High School for seven months. He died in 1937. And I learned then that Rosenwald schools or black schools, populated schools, either had colored in them or training in my writing. They're either Sampson County Training School or Garland Colored High School. This sort of denotes which ones were attended by people of color. That was a little research I didn't expect, although I knew it was happening. And I did finally get two masters and an EDS and um, another master's at East Carolina. I enjoyed it. I knew that would be my last time on the campus. Mm. And my step, my mother married again to my father's, my older brother who was 20 years older than she, but they had nine children. And most of them were either pharmacists, they were lawyers, they were physicians, they were cosmetologists, carpenters. They all wanted to get off the farm too. And um, one or two were left, males were left to um, take care of the farm. It was a large farm. He was really a career farmer. My father was not. He was mixed here and there and would go to the field in a starched white shirt to stay for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's amazing, you know, that uh, when you look back at uh, the life of African-Americans, particularly here yeah. in, uh, in, in North Carolina, back in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, where uh, people were uh, landowners. And I think that 
we would describe you as uh, having lived lived in the country uh, yes, during, this is during right. that time near about near about Clinton. And uh, you, <laughs> you're right, but you know what? I was from the country, but I never was of the country. I never learned. <laughs> I never had a garden. I'd stay away from the. Um, I did do the tobacco barn. I enjoyed that. But uh, the cotton and the strawberries and all of the other, I stayed in my room and read as much as I could. I escaped through reading. Oh. I was an avid reader then, and I'm an avid reader now. I um, really enjoyed it. My twin sister and I really went to school at five. And then we were promoted mid-year. So we ended up graduating from high school at 16. We had just turned 16. So by the time we got to Central, we really were turning 18 where we should have been, trying to catch up with our peers instead of individuals going to school with them who were much older than we. So I did appreciate that. And I really don't know if I would recommend that for anybody. I did. Now you, 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 and your sister, your twin sister, yes, were uh, Mutt and Jeff. Y'all were just tied up close uh, together. Yes. Can you kind of talk about your upbringing at uh, or your educational journey at uh, North Carolina uh, College uh, since you went there really as oddities, in that many people who were classmates had never seen identical twins before. I know, I know. And we were scared rabbits. The professor called us that. <laughs> we, we, went, we were simply scared rabbits. But we did have an opportunity then to separate and try to find our identity by being given different classes. That helped a lot. We were dressing alike. We looked alike. We'd finish each other's sentences. In fact, at one time, I made uh, a date with for my sister's boyfriend <laughs> until he asked me, well, what time do you want me to pick you up? I said, now, Thomas, you know I'm not Myrtle. I'm Bertha. <laughs> I, had to I had to confess. And then I went upstairs and told her. But Dr. Shepard died the year we went there. And we were supposed to have been flower girls, but we missed the time, so we weren't. And um, I will tell you, North Carolina College of Durham, currently North Carolina Central University, gave my twin sister Myrtle and me an opportunity to reach some of our potential. It gave us an opportunity to spread our wings and prepare us for the world that we were about to meet. Now, both of you graduated with uh, degrees in biology, uh, which would suggest that there was some medical aspiration. Uh, but then the both of you ended up uh, as, uh, as teachers. You and the... Uh, 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 educational system in Wilmington and then she in the uh, at the college uh, level. Can you kind of talk about th that switch, that change uh, in uh, your focus uh, from your educational journey to your work history? I certainly can. Since we were brought up in a family of educators, we were trying to break the mold 
of everybody being a teacher or a principal or a professor. So we decided we were going to be physicians, pediatricians, whatever. We were going into the medical school because we liked science. And that was our first example of being mostly in all male classrooms. Dr. Lee, if you check him out in the history of Central, he was a good professor. And I can't remember any of the other names on the spur of the moment. But when we expressed our feelings and goals with our brother and elder brother and sister and our mother, they told us in our senior year, now listen, we have supported you twins for four years, almost four years. We don't have any more money to send you to the med school. And we suggest that you take some education courses so that you can get a job. <laughs> well, that was the mandate. And we remained another year after graduation in 51 and pursued a master's in library science. And there we completed that master's after five and a half years, a year and a half. And we decided then to enter the world of work because we needed the money. We weren't gonna get any more money. And we also decided we were offered jobs in the same educational system, but we thought it was time for identical twins to split. On the campus, we were called Pete and Repeat. We were called twins and retwin. We were never called Bertha or Myrtle. And we had to seek an identity. And that's the story of switching from the medical field to the educational field. <laughs> this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we are talking with uh, Mrs. Uh, Bertha Morgan Todd, a uh, longtime resident of Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, about her life, and then more importantly, uh, how that impact uh, the uh, her learning of 1898 uh, Wilmington massacre and Wilmington Ten, and then transferring between the uh, desegregation of the uh, school system there in uh, New Hanover County. Uh, we're going to take our break uh, right now. want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this uh, very important uh, conversation. Uh, so we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center. 
made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue our conversation with uh, Ms. Bertha Tong. And uh, we were talking about her early life, uh, where she brought us up to her tenure at uh, North Carolina College. Uh, it's now North Carolina Central uh, University, but everybody always knew it as NCC. Uh, and uh, a way to maintain the NCC was to make it North Carolina Central University rather than the University of North Carolina at Durham. Uh, you, you, you left from uh, North Carolina College. How did you end up in, uh, in Wilmington? Because normally during that time, most people who became teachers returned home and taught in the school system that was either in or near uh, their uh, their hometown, uh, but you ended up in Wilmington. Can you kind of talk to us about how that occurred? Yes, I can. There was a Reverend Perry, who was the principal of the Roseboro High School, and he promised both of us jobs in the school system in Sampson County, and we decided we didn't want to go back there. <laughs> well, there was a young lady who was teacher, who was from Williston at the time, who was attending summer school. And we all were rooming in the same house. There was no rooms or dormitory for graduate students at that time. So we lived in this two-story house on Fayetteville Street and would walk over to Central. And she was talking one day and asked, if we were interested in jobs, because Williston at that time, population was large enough to warrant two full-time librarians or media specialists. And I completed the application, although both of us at the time with the masters, and we were going to pursue doctorates, were more interested in junior college work and then college university. But I, signed the contract, this was in August, because I needed a job, I hadn't given a mandate. My sister already had an offer and I didn't want to go where she was. And I filled the contract out of the application and this teacher of Williston took it back to her principal and he offered me a job on the spot because in the fifties, very few whites or blacks had a master's degree and library science in Wilmington, New Hanover County, especially. So I signed the contract, but the superintendent was racist. And when I found a job at a junior college and I was offered that position, this superintendent told the principal, 
Well, I tell you one thing. You can tell, I don't know what he called me, it could have been anything. <laughs> if she breaks that contract, I will work hard to see that she doesn't get a job anywhere in the state of North Carolina. So what do you do? I came kicking and screaming in the fall of 1952. I knew I had some relatives. I didn't know I had as many as I did. Else, maybe I would have fought it even harder. But um, that's the way I got to Wilmington. I had planned to remain one year only. Then I was going to move on. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that didn't happen. I got married here with a teacher in the high school. And that just solidified my goals. And Booker T. Washington's book, had a statement in his book, because I was devastated. Cast down your bucket where you are. That's in his book. So, Miss Todd. Yes. So you, you in sharing your um, family's journey, HBCUs, of course, play an incredibly prominent role. Mm-hmm. And so you were teaching at you know, in segregated, a segregated school system. So it's a school that has African-Americans. Can you talk about the role that um, Williston played in the black community and talk about the ability of the students to do the type of work that, you know, you and other educators in the school demanded? Yes. We always told this, well, really, Williston's faculty and staff practice in loco parentis 100 degrees. We looked after the whole child. It wasn't just academics. Some were members of the same churches. Some of the faculty members knew the mothers and the fathers and the grandmothers. And most of the parents at that time are guardians had not finished high school. They turned their children over to us and expected us to do doubly in looking after their children. They would ask questions and some of them really, the parents, wouldn't even come to PTA because they trusted the teachers so much. And those were some hard working faculty members. I set up the um, library in the new high school, Williston Senior High School. And I taught library lessons to all of the English classes so that they could better do their work and assignments given by the teachers. We also knew that in a new high school, we should not have had used books. We should not have had secondhand furniture in some cases, but we continued to work. We accepted, well, I didn't really accept too much from my supervisors. And my supervisor, to give you a good example, would talk with me and give courtesy titles to all of the white librarians. And the black librarians, she refused to do that. Well, she started that on me and I had a conference with her one time. I said, Mrs. Bennett, just either put Williston Senior High School Library on the box of books and just forget my name on there. 
I did that twice. And finally, I said, I was pretty boisterous. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't an angel. So you have to use the other word. And finally, on the third conference regarding courtesy titles, I said, Mrs. Bennett, since you seem to want our relationship on a more informal basis, from now on, I shall call you Martha and feel free to call me Bertha. And I did that until she retired. I knew that I was, well, I didn't realize it, but that's the way I was taught. I don't mimic my words. I'm very candid. I'm very optimistic and also very positive. But, and when you read my reflections, you're going to see what my counterpart, Dr. Bolton Anthony said about me. I have a will of steel. Now, there was a government teacher who mandated research papers before that student could get out of government. And that was a requirement for his class. And these were seniors who were in government. Joseph McNeil was in that class. And I knew Joseph, he was always checking out books in the library. Well, Lowe was only teaching the rights and responsibilities of American citizens. And aren't we American citizens? We're not second-class citizens. That's what he was teaching. Meanwhile, I was fighting my own battles with my supervisor. I made a book order regarding school desegregation and the integration of schools. I made that order in the fall. By spring, I had not received the order. And then she informed me that I said, Mrs. Bennett or Martha, where are my books? And she said, well, Bertha, the superintendent and I went over the list of books. And we decided you had too many books on there about school desegregation and the integration of schools. So I said, well, please tell the superintendent this for me. I have a master's in library science. I have professional tools that I use to make book orders. Now, if he has any other tools that list other books, please send them to me because I never got the book order and I, and I never got books from the superintendent. What I was doing. So one Monday morning, Lowe was at his door. It was right across from the library. He said, Miss Sa, Miss Sa, have you heard the latest? I said, no, what are you talking about? He said, I understand you and I under scrutiny. Well, I knew where I should have been, but I didn't know they were scrutinizing him too. So I said, okay, that's fine. Because I knew I was only doing my job, candid or whatever. And one day when Lowe came to the library and we were doing research and I was giving the students topics and preparing or trying to find materials for those topics, six white individuals came from central office. They stopped by his classroom first. They didn't see him, so they assumed he was over in the library with his counterpart. And we were busily doing what we should have been doing professionally. Three of them came to me to discuss what I was doing. And three talked with Mr. Lowe on what he was doing. 
And I, I think, I hope they were satisfied. We never heard from them again. Now, did we get any more scrutinizing rumors? But these are the kinds of things that happened at Williston Senior High School. We worked hard. We pushed our kids out there to do the right thing and be citizens and hold their heads up with pride. This is why Joe McNeil was the one to tell the other three the rights and responsibilities regarding citizens. He did that, the, one of the Greensboro Four. Joe was one of those. And that's the kind of basis Joe received from Williston Senior High School. Well, Ms. Todd, you, you had the experience of working in the uh, segregated African-American school. You also worked in the uh, integrated Yes, uh, I desegregated yes. uh, New Hanover County uh, school system. And there is always this, uh, at least myth in my mind, that the uh, segregated African-American schools were inferior. Can you comment on that? No, I can. Well, I know they're not inferior. Yes, I can comment on it. Oh, by the way, when we were at Williston, the racist superintendent, made the counselors and the principal retake a test that seniors took because the scores were too high. Our kids were going to Ivy Leaf schools <laughs> at Williston. Now, when we really were transferred and I was transferred only one week before school opened at John T. Hoggart, I was at Williston 15, I was at John T. Hoggart 17 and central office seven. But um, when I, experienced the desegregated student body at John T. Hoggard. It was no more in local parentis. Those white parents, some of them, were more concerned about what the teachers taught. And you don't take my child. We'll do this at home. We'll teach them this at home. This is what I encountered. So it was difficult in a student population of 2,300 students which it was then, to control them one way or the other, to find there was no training for the students to become desegregated. It, they found it out in the paper, so did the faculty members. And a week before school opened, I didn't know where I was assigned. There was already, there were only two schools, New Hanover High, the white school, and Harvard, the, the, the newly built school. And there was already a black librarian at New Hanover High. And I also knew that I found out too that our Williston Senior High School was not inferior. Our kids had been well taught. They knew they had to be doubly prepared. They used the materials they had, whether the materials were inferior or not, used books and made the best of it. Back to Hoggard, we had riots two and three times a week in that population of 2,300. It was difficult. And being in the library, I was able to work with the students and try to get them to behave the right way, to state their reasons why, what they wanted and their wishes. 
but I only remained in there. And I knew there were some white students who may not want me to help them. But I did have 15 years of experience and my coworker who was white had only one year of experience. So as a result of that, I remained on the floor to help the students. And she sat in the office ordering books with my input. And well, I hate to say this, but she didn't know that it takes experience to become a good librarian or media specialist. And unfortunately, she had just acquired a year of experience and she didn't have a master's. She switched from math because she thought it was going to be easy. But being a media specialist, it's not easy. So as a result of that, I made friends with whites and blacks and helped them find the materials they were searching for. Because usually they'd hit the door, the library door, very frustrated and angry at the teacher for making the assignment. And uh, I had to calm them down and go through a process of trying to help them find the work that they were seeking. Well, I don't know who spilled to the Board of Education, but after one year and three months, the board pushed me into another position. I did not want it. It had no guidelines and they didn't consider that. I refused it at first through my principal and then finally a physician friend of mine, the Upperman Centers on uh, UNCW's campus and Dr. Upperman was a good friend. And he said, now Bert, let me tell you one thing. Suppose you don't accept this position. What do you think your role will be? I said, trying to acquaint somebody with why the board put me here. I said, oh, well, that answers that question. I'll go ahead and take the position. <laughs> <laughs> it paid well. It was because we were having so many riots or disturbances. The board members of the staff got a big federal grant to try to help us along with school desegregation. Because since May 17, 1954, 14 years later, and here we are. So they knew that we needed to do better. Now, back to that, that's what occurred. I knew seven of the Wilmington 10. This is why I was on a state committee visiting Governor Hunt, and I was a spokesperson asking him to commute those sentences, which he did. And of course, I was on the same committee under, not same committee, sorry, this was a state committee first, under Mayor Alice Gervais Thatch and her committee and seeking to have those Wilmington 10 sentences pardoned, have those individuals pardoned. I wrote them when they were in the prisons but it was because of the 1898 massacre that caused those sentences. The environment was different then. We had not even worked to commemorate 100 years of that. Uh, and we're gonna have to take a break uh, right now. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. We're talking with uh, Ms. Bertha Todd, uh, who was a longtime uh, teacher, activist, uh, scholar, in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and kind of bridged the gap uh, between uh, the impact of 1898, uh, the uh, Wilmington 10, 
uh, misprosecutions that occurred, and her work in the uh, school system in New Hanover County is legendary, uh, making her a uh, shero uh, in uh, that community, both for African Americans and whites, and was a uh, bridge tender that helped to make the transition from the segregated school system into the desegregated uh, school system. But we're going to take our break right now, and then we're going to come back and uh, have some more conversation with uh, Ms. Bertha Todd. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with the absolutely delightful Bertha Boykin Todd. She is a native of Sampson County, North Carolina. She is an educator and author of the book, My Restless Journey which describes her upbringing and many contributions that she made to Wilmington, North Carolina. And we are also happy to emphasize that she is a proud graduate of NCCU uh, at the time, North Carolina College. Uh, and we've been talking about her incredibly interesting journey um, as an educator in North Carolina. And Ms. Todd, right before the break, you were talking about the Wilmington 10 and how you knew uh, seven of the 10 individuals involved in that. Can you share with us when and how you first learned about the 1898 Wilmington Race Massacre? Actually, I can. When I first came here, there were several people of color who came up to me and almost talked in whispers about something that happened in 1898. And some would say, and this white family looked after us. And some of us ran to the cemetery. Well, I listened, but I didn't realize the full impact. Then there was another one. Oh, a white female with whom I was on a board with Family Service Travelers Aid in those years. Her name was Alice Sisson, very good friend of mine. And she told me how her family members took in some Black families to protect them. 
I was getting an awareness of something that I found here because I found a cloud over this area. I found some blacks not willing to look whites in the face. I was always taught that when you speak with people, you look them in the face and the eye. And I was doing that. And even my coworker at Williston was not doing that. And I really wanted to say to her, why do you turn your head when our supervisor is talking with you and you with her? I never did, I just watched it. Well, I think at that time, whites figured I had come from Mars and blacks figured I may have come from Mars too. So I just really said, well, I guess I'll just remain. Even at the congregational church with the white minister and I, we had over 200 students, black students from New Hanover High and Hoggett boycotting school. And that's where I became a um, leader by default. But who were the adults? The white minister and Bertha Todd. Mm. Nobody else was there. So I had to do something. Of course, the superintendent realized I was there. And um, I was sort of a double agent then. I won't go back into that. It was only after I lost my husband and my elder sister six weeks apart in 1995 that I became the first active co-chair with Dr. Bolton Anthony from UNCW of the 1898 Centennial Foundation. Mm -hmm. That's when I realized the residual effect that that massacre and coup had on blacks and whites here in the city of Wilmington. And since 1994, when I met Bolton, in 1995, when I became involved with his first co-chair, Black, it was one Black and one white, of the foundation as well as the subcommittees. And we realized then, I realized what a profound residual effect the deaths and the rumors down through the years had affected the city of Wilmington. Mm -hmm. and, yes, go ahead. Yeah. And, and can, can you kind of talk about, uh, well, the the reasons that the uh, students decided to boycott uh, Hargett and uh, New Hanover uh, High School after uh, they had been uh, desegregated? Well, that was before the burning of Mike's Grocery and we realized there was a Wilmington 10. At the church, I took over that meeting because they thought that I was coming there to squeal on them. I sat in the back and I realized this, if you feel this strongly about issues that you are leaving your place of learning environments, then we've got to discuss it and we've got to see what we can do. One, they wanted black studies in the schools. At Williston, we were accustomed to black studies all year round. A second thing they wanted, they wanted black counselors who they could spill their hearts out to. Third one, they knew some of the teachers at Hoggart were racist thinking and they, their self-esteem was suffering. These, uh, they wanted to play uh, football, basketball, tennis, 
but the activity bus would not go in the inner city after school hours. And they were suffering from these things that were taken away from them at Williston Senior High School. They wanted um, consideration for student council because we had some good student body presidents, Philip Clay, who was the first black MIT president. <laughs> and these are the kinds of things they wanted to experience, but they felt that all of that had been taken away. What, what was the impact, uh, do you think, that the student boycott, which then became the Wilmington 10 case, had on uh, citizens uh, in, uh, in Wilmington, both the African-American uh, community and the, and the white community, since you were kind of able to transfer between the two? Yes, I kept one foot in the white and one in the black. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do have to do. And that, uh, well... The adults knew it was wrong, but they were still frightened with the residual effect of 18. They wouldn't speak out. It was only people who moved into Wilmington that were willing to speak out and be heard. And then Blacks more or less said that, oh, they're coming in here to stir up things. They did that for Dr. Eaton Sr., who was in Wilmington. And it was frustrating because they said about me, I didn't learn it until later, but that's okay. Um, and the students felt as if they didn't have many blacks who were in the community who were going to stand up for them. And the whites, I guess, looked at me, I was fair. I'm always fair and candid and positive and optimistic. I'm a strategist. And the whites accepted me to a degree from school desegregation based on their students who were attending Harvard. And when I was appointed to that position by the board and Williston students said, Mrs. Todd, you belong to us. I said, no, I belong to any student who needs help that I can give them. And so I'm sure many white um, students took that back home. So they were willing to listen and respect me for my sense of fairness and justice for everybody. And yes. Ms. Todd, can you describe the reactions in the community when the students were arrested and when Ben Chavis was arrested? Yes. First, Unfortunately, Ben Chavis was only 23 or 24. I was at that church that morning and I heard he was coming in, had been invited, and I did not return after then. Why? Because I, after all, I was an employee of the Board of Education. I was not employed by the community. So I had to stop my double agent stuff. They were happy to see Ben Chavis come. But unfortunately, Ben Chavis did not realize the impact of a massacre in 1898 when he came to this area. It was for, fermented by the state, the governor, the president McKinley during those times, but he wasn't aware of that. In fact, the people in Wilmington, lots of them were not aware of it. Everybody sat back then and expected this young leader to free us same as Golden Franks when he came. These individuals, Blacks, sat back 
and waited for him and those poor students to do all the work. They weren't able to do that. They didn't have the base. It wasn't only after we commemorated 1898 and 1998 that we began to open up this system of adults, students, and the atmosphere and try to move on. We did not begin the process of reconciliation until after the park was uh, dedicated. And we are still in, if it took us a hundred years to uncover it, it's gonna take a hundred or more years to continue the process of reconciliation. So in talking about the, the decision to commemorate the 1898 um, Wilmington race massacre, can you talk about the decision to commemorate it and, and what are your thoughts about um, the necessity for that? It was difficult. I was almost the only black female working with about four or five professors from the university when we met all white groups, all black groups, mixed groups, you name it. We tried to lay and the Chamber of Commerce. But I will sort of leave most of that for you to read in the reflections of a massacre and a coup d'etat, simply because it's, I don't know how many minutes we have, but it's much too long a story to begin even part of it. I can say that we feel as if we have been successfully moving along in the process of reconciliation. We also felt very badly, and I began to use an analogy in an anecdotal sort of way to explain to all white groups. I said, in 1898, this city and this county in North Carolina suffered a wound. It was never healed properly. Now, a hundred years later, if we don't confront and face our past and dig into this wound and lance it, we'll never be able to start a process of getting along and reconciliation. Where, 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 do, where do you, how do you rank where Wilmington is now in the area of uh, racial reconciliation and the respect uh, that goes across the board from race to race and allowing for, uh, I guess, the term freedom, justice, and equality for all? I will rank it in the 90s, 90%. I've watched Wilmington grow. I have seen the progress we have made since we opened up that wound and we are trying to heal it. I can't tell you there's a diversity and equity officer for the Board of Education. There is the county commissioners hired the first one. There's an officer for the county. There's an officer, and I'm in touch with all of them, for the city. There's an officer for uh, the university. Had not these predominantly white boards decided that would help us move along, that would never have happened to help us move along. Had not Bertha Boykin Todd been on the front page of the Wilmington Star News 
uh, I don't know even how it's articles downstairs. They call me the Countess of Wilmington. Had not Thalian Hall been filled with the predominantly white audience, few of us Blacks were there. When Clyde Edgerton, John Sullivan, and Rihanna Gibbons from Ireland, the singer, performed to that full audience for an hour and a half. They called it massacre. They said, talked about the atrocities. They talked about all of this. When they finished, Rihanna sang uh, songs that were trended during those years. And they gave her a standing ovation. I was there. Uh, you can't imagine how gratified I was to see how far we've come. And Ms. Todd, that, that's so insightful. And as you were talking and, and as you have been sharing your experiences and your history, our history, right? The history of North Carolina, the history of our country, there are those who are resisting um, the, the study of the history of this country. Can you just in our last few minutes share your thoughts on why it's so important that we do um, explore our history, one, to know, it, to know it, but to also move towards healing these wounds? I will say about the critical race theory that it was taught years ago in all of the segregated schools. It took us working with 1898 to call what happened first violence. It took riots. It took all of that before we could even say massacre. Critical race theory for the schools and people in general is going to have to take an evolutionary process. It's not going to be revolutionary. I've discovered that in my working with controversial projects and we got to keep chicken, chipping, chipping, chipping. That's the only way. No one wants his or her ego challenged when you find out your forebears or ancestors did these atrocities. You've got to be counseled. You've got to say some good things. I did that with, um, and he's in my book, a well-known attorney here. He's in that Reflections book. I had to tell him over and over, you are not responsible for what your grandfather did. Why do you carry it on your shoulders when you are trying to do so many good things for people here in this county? I knew what he was doing. And it took for his behavior to be modified. It took effort, continuity, and logic. Because I pray a lot. My faith is strong. <laughs> you stay on your knees when you're out there with stuff. But that's what I feel about the critical race theory. And we've got to learn to face. I don't know. Did I 
Professor Johnny, did I send your book moving forward together? You did. You okay. Did. We are getting ready to revise a few things in there, but I'll let you know when the others, we want the world to know these are the things we did as a result of this controversial effort. And um, I'm just talking on reflections first person as to what I had to do with some of it. Bolton left me holding the bag after December of 1999. And it was either whether I believed in it or whether I was willing to try to carry on and I chose to carry on. I have a strong commitment to facing the past and I have a strong commitment to a work ethic from whence I've come. Well, outstanding. Thank you so much, Bertha, Boyk, and Todd for taking time out of your schedule and sharing your amazing life and experiences with us and sharing that history, which we all need to, to understand, uh, to learn more about. So we can't thank you enough for your time. Miss Todd is a native of Sampson County. Um, she is the author of five books, including My Restless Journey, which describes her upbringing and the many contributions she has made to Wilmington. She's also a very proud graduate of North Carolina College, now NCCU. We can't thank her enough for her time. And of course, we'd like to thank you as always, our listening audience for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.